Welcome to Utopias Now. So we've been thinking a lot about the state of society and our new reality since the pandemic hit. And we've been discussing how this time has taught us so much about ourselves and even more about the systems that we have in place today. And I often wonder, how did we get here? Well, I think it was due to the choices we made as a collective species, which in other words is explained by the study of economics. And that's what we're going to talk about today in this episode with a very special guest who has basically dedicated his entire life to studying this field in depth. And not just that, he's also someone who wrote a whole book on the economics of the pandemic called Economics in One Virus. This book draws upon the dramatic effects of 2020 to bring to life some of the most important principles of economic thought and insights about the nature of the economic system that we have in place today. I am talking about the British economist and writer, Ryan Bourne. Ryan currently occupies the R. Evan Schaaf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. Before joining Cato, Ryan was the Head of Public Policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs and the Head of Economic Research at the Center for Policy Studies and also, he holds a master's degree in economics from the University of Cambridge. But don't be intimidated, because you don't need to be an economist to understand this conversation. You know, actually, you already are an economist in a way. Are you confused? Well, stay tuned because Ryan will explain and demonstrate exactly how you already are an economist in a way, and also tell us more about how to further develop an economic way of thinking. This experience certainly changed the way we thought about economics and the pandemic and the choices we've made in our lives, and we hope that it does the same for you. The first question I wanted to get into um, to sort of melt the ice, as Shash would say, and that's quite intentional instead of calling it break the ice, um, was to ask about uh, was to talk about these notions of what an economist is. And so in Australia, I, I remember in high school, my teacher would say that economists have to be a certain way. They have to be very proper. They have to speak very formally. And this is what an economist is. And, you know, the, 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 the LIBOR rate is 0.02%. And, you know, there's a sort of like idea of what an economist is. But obviously reading your book, um, that is not necessarily the case. There's a lot of interesting things that are demonstrated through your book, a lot of interesting concepts, and they are very applicable, not only in the, in the, in a, in a, like a academic sense, but in a pragmatic sense, they're very practical. So I just wanted to ask like, firstly, um, what do you, what is an economist to you? And what does it mean to be an economist? Well, I think economists themselves have different conceptions of their, their role in society. Um, I quite like the distinction made by economist Pete Betke, uh, George Mason University, who says there's two types of economists, really. There's uh, people who believe that economists are saviors, that we have this kind of uh, toolkit uh, of interventions and means of analysis to, to work out what's wrong with society and then um, suggest some sort of intervention and then test it using evaluative uh, methods and work out what's best for society. I've never really kind of gone for that conception of what an economist is. I tend to think of economists, well, I tend to think of economics in its broadest sense as just um, the evaluation, the analysis of human behavior 
in a world of ever-changing contexts and ever-changing constraints. I think that's really the broadest conception of it. And I think that captures almost all schools of economics, whether that be game theory or all the way through to uh, macroeconomics and the impact of you know fiscal policy, tweaking government spending or, or tweaking monetary policy. And in that regard, the pandemic has been a goldmine for thinking about economic ideas because as a result of all the disruption we've seen, um, lots of different decisions have had to be made both at an individual level and at the level of governments that have had really consequential impacts. And economists, I think, um, have a good grounding in how to think about those choices and how to evaluate those choices. Um, and there's a whole range of, uh, of different things I think economists take for granted that I try to outline in the book to give readers the tools to assess those choices. Yeah, that's very fascinating. And um, like you said, there's a lot of things that can fall under economics, a lot of different schools of thought. And one thing I wanted to get at just before maybe diving into uh, specific details uh, is to get to know uh, the person who um, wrote the book and to know a bit more about um, why you do what you do. So, um, you know, we all have driven by different things, different motivations, um, and I wanted to know, and we both would like to know is um, why do you do what you do and maybe explain a bit what that is, because I'm sure a lot of people would be quite curious. Yeah. So I actually came to this think tank world relatively late in, um, late in the day, you know, I'm not somebody that's always been interested in public policy and, and politics and the application of economics there. Like most other people, I graduated, um, in the summer of 2008 for, as an economist, um, the financial crisis was kicking off. I recognized that it was probably a bad time to follow the herd into finance. And, uh, and so I, I took a year and did a master's um, at university in economics again. And then I kind of started looking at consultancy work in, in terms of the application of, of public policy, the evaluation of public policy. Um, I kind of recognized that I preferred doing work that I thought had real world um, consequences and I recognized that there were a lot of pitfalls in the political process and I thought I could um, help improve on that. I didn't really enjoy doing the client driven work though um, and you know a lot of the time rather than being a kind of objective evaluator of what was going on I found myself having to represent particular clients interests in, in disputes and I perhaps didn't always agree with the client's position in terms of a kind of pure economic outcome. Um, so I had a lucky or unlucky break, um, if, if you want to put it that way. I actually broke my leg uh, playing soccer whilst I was working as a consultant. And that meant I spent a lot of time at home during the 2010 general election campaign in the, in the UK. Started blogging about the economics of the different um, platforms being put forward by the parties in that, um, in that election. And then I thought, well, is this something that I could do as a career? So I moved into the public policy world in Westminster. Um, but I kind of realized when I got there, but that by the time politicians <laughs> entering parliament, it's too late. Uh, they already have their conception of what they want to achieve or they have their priors. And at that stage, um, they're buoyed by the fact that they've been uh, elected by their peers, that they have very strong views of the world. And so actually, I realized that the most important role I could perhaps play as an economist was to be more public facing and actually just try to shift the dial slightly uh, 
as, as best you can in improving the public understanding of economics. And I started working for a, an economics education charity in the UK called the Institute of Economic Affairs. Um, and from that work, the opportunity to come over to Cato in an endowed position, specifically, um, you know, working on the public understanding of economics, that opportunity came about. So I'm extremely grateful for the vision of the the donor who's endowed the chair for, for 10 years. I'm the current occupant of that chair. Um, I hope to continue to be the occupant of that chair for, for some time. Um, but that work, I really see my work in kind of two strands there. There's, um, there's kind of commenting on day-to-day -day debates and trying to bring basic economic insights to the case studies of things all around us. And as I say, the pandemic has been a really good opportunity to do that. Uh, not just because the, the um, decisions have been co so consequential, but it's captured everyone's imagination, right? Everybody is interested in why these decisions are being made, what impact that they're having in a way that analyzing, say, a childcare regulation wouldn't get people going. Um, and I think that combined with the fact that um, as something completely different that hasn't happened in, in uh, a meaningful way before, you know, we have never had such a kind of policy reaction to a pandemic like this. I think the, the kind of retrospectives that are written and the evaluation of what happened and what to do in the future will be really, really important. And so I want to provide my readers with the tools to try and think about what actually went wrong, not just the surface level decisions, but why were those wrong decisions being made and how can we improve on those processes for the future? Yeah, fantastic. And I think as you rightfully pointed out um, uh, through the pandemic, people were very interested in day-to-day -day decision-making of governments much more so than previously um, that we had. And I think, it is so it is so interesting from uh, just coming from a university student's perspective i'm sure shashwat can attest to this to see policy decisions made and having that very high level of scrutiny not just from students but from all ages from people that your parents your grandparents to even you know people in school they're saying you know why are the governments making these decisions why are things happening this way and i think it really illuminates the importance of economics and illuminates many other avenues for career paths. And you, um, it was very interesting to see your career trajectory and why you chose to be um, in the pub in, you know, doing research on public economics. Um, and perhaps I would like to transition to another question of why economics is, is important. But before that, maybe I think it's important we really establish what economics is. Um, and so I'd like to know um, what you think economics is and, and what that looks like to you. Yeah, I mean, I do think in its broadest sense, economics, and there's a big debate in economics as to whether we're a social science or a social philosophy. Um, but I think in its broadest sense, economics is the analysis, the evaluation of human action in its broadest sense, um, in an ever changing world, uh, and in a world where our decisions are constrained. Um, your podcast is called Utopia now. Unfortunately, we're not at Utopia. We're in a world of of difficult and thorny trade-offs. Um, and so I think the economist, as we to kind of go back to your first question, the role of the economist is to really assess why decisions are made, the process by which people make decisions and to evaluate the consequences of those decisions. 
Um, and that can lead people to very different paths. It can lead to people playing that role of economists as savior, thinking they can improve on um, individual and collective decisions that are made in markets. Or it can lead people to um, examine the pitfalls of those types of interventions. And I usually kind of fall um, in, that, in that latter category. Um, but what does that mean in, in terms of you know, day-to-day -day application? I would say that anyone can be an economist. I think there's a kind of economic way of thinking that can enable you to get into quite a bit of detail in assessing choices and problems without having formal training in econometrics and the like. I mean, it, that might be helpful for reading some, some, some papers, but I don't think it's necessary. I think there are certain things that you know are really key though. I think accepting that there are lots of trade-offs in the world that by and large, there isn't such a thing as a free lunch, you know. Uh, I think accepting that um, the world is dynamic and not static. I think a lot of the problems in this pandemic have stemmed from the fact that people see the world as a zero-sum game, um, when in fact uh, a lot of economic activity is is positive sum and um, individuals' markets respond to different things happening and that creates a kind of dynamism in the economy uh, over time and uh, also that the, the, there's behavioral responses to, to everything so we're not just um, we're not just inanimate objects that um, act in a certain way when some sort of stimulus uh, is applied to us uh, we're human beings whose expectations about the world change when uh, public policy changes mandates change um, and and uh, kind of disentangle in that relationship between public policy and private action, I think is another really underexplored thing. So, so economists have a means of thinking about the world that I think lends itself quite well to thinking about what we've lived through in the pandemic. And in its broadest sense, I do think economics is just that. I think economics is, is a, a social science, a social philosophy that collects tools and frameworks and and visions of the world that help us try to understand human choices in an ever-changing world. That's so fascinating, Ryan, the way you put that, uh, and the spectrum of being a social science and a social philosophy, because I read somewhere that science talks about what is, and philosophy talks about what ought to be. And economics, I feel like, is that spectrum of trying to navigate those spaces of what is, understanding that, and then what ought to be, and um, making better decisions to go from what is to what ought to be. And it sounds like, from what you said, ec economics is all about making better choices, making better decisions. It seems like everyone can be an economist in a certain way, in a broad sense, without even, um, maybe without needing to study it formally. So I'm curious to know whether you would agree to that. And if yes, if you could give a glimpse of insight into what it actually means to have an economic way of thinking. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that I think to a certain extent, we are all economists in the sense of we apply economics, sometimes unknowingly. Um, so a good example of this is something that I describe in the book as thinking on the margin. Um, and that means that, you know, rather than thinking about the an average impact of something that's happened in the past, we should be forward looking and think, if I do this extra thing, 
what will the costs and benefits of this additional thing be on top of everything that's happened? So let me put, give a couple of examples of that. So when we're making public policy decisions, for example, lots of people always say, um, we should spend more on infrastructure, right? You hear that across the political spectrum. And one of the things that they hold up for justifying why we should spend more on infrastructure is they say stuff like, aha, if you look back, this economic study shows that when we built the interstate highway by reducing travel times, it boosted productivity, boosted GDP, made us all better off. Okay, that's fine. But you know what? Just because you built one interstate highway system doesn't mean building a second interstate highway system would have the same balance of costs and benefits. And we all apply that in our lives every day. When you go to the bar, I don't know if you guys drink, but when you go to the bar, you have the first pint and it tastes good and it's a nice hot summer's day. It cools you down slightly. You enjoy the warm, fuzzy feeling as you get to the bottom. Then you think, well, maybe I should have a second one. You might have the second one. That might make you feel even more um, kind of relaxed and, and, and a better conversationalist or whatever for that period. But when you get to the third or the fourth, you start thinking, hmm, you know, tomorrow, I could feel slightly rough if I have this. This might impair my judgment in some ways. I've got to drive home. And if I have this third or fourth one, um, I'm going to have to leave my you know, car here for a day or so and then come and pick it up. So the costs and benefits only make sense when thinking about the marginal choice, the next choice that you're making in your life. Um, and, and that's a key economic insight that we kind of all apply but then when it comes to public policy decisions, uh, we often forget. You know, we all recognize in our lives that there are trade-offs in, in, in terms of when we travel. Um, I remember at the start of this pandemic, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo came out with those immortal lines that politicians so often say where they say, if all my lockdown measures just save one life, I'll be happy. You know, it's clearly absurd to suggest that we can put an infinite value on the life of any given New Yorker in making social decisions. And we recognize as individuals that that's absurd. Um, we recognize that we could reduce car deaths to near zero if we set the speed limit at three miles per hour. We don't set it at three miles per hour uh, because we recognize that there'll be huge economic costs in terms of um, everybody driving that slowly in terms of both reducing the flows of trade in terms of stopping us getting to our destinations as often. So we accept in our real lives that there are these trade-offs, but when it comes to public policy, we often tend to forget these, these lessons. And that's why I want to, you know, bring to life to people that actually a lot of these economic concepts are very simple. And a lot of the mistakes that are being made in this pandemic is because we've forgotten these simple lessons. Yeah, I absolutely love that example that you highlight in the book and you mentioned very briefly, but very effectively, marginal costs and marginal benefits and explaining that. And as a former a former economics student in high school and then in my early years of university, um, MPC and, uh, um, you know, marginal um, costs and marginal benefits is something that I was always taught and sort of memorized, but intuitively it was not something that I was like, okay, how do I apply this in the real world? Obviously, there's the mathematical formula you can apply but like practically speaking it's sort of you know the utility of it rests in the exam and getting a good mark as opposed to in real life whereas you highlight very well in 
in real life, it is very, very important because it is in the detail and the gray areas and the nuance of decision-making where a very, very big impacts can be had. And this actually going back to marginal thinking, where you mentioned that in um, chapter seven, thinking of the margins, I wanted to ask a question about this and it relates to another book by a Stanford professor. Her name is um, Susan Lioto. She has a book called The Power of Ethics. And one of the principles she talks about in the book is it's called banishing the binary. And essentially to give a quick summary, it's when you're making tough decisions, specifically ethical decisions, uh, there's a lot of uh, black and white thinking that can be applied um, on the day-to-day life just because it's quite easy to, you know, label things as right or wrong. And in some sense, there are things that are right and wrong, right? Like, you know, maybe racism and uh, things related to this there, you, you can see how there's a binary thinking there. And similarly in economics, there are policy decisions that are, you know, unanimous, unanimously all good, like the good policy, bad policy. But one thing I was very curious about is how do we reconcile these differences of binary decisions and uh, why is margin, thinking on the margin useful in a, in a, in a tool for our day-to-day lives? So a key insight of thinking on the margin is that the optimal quantity of almost anything is not zero. Um, there's a really funny example of this that I mentioned in the book that one of my colleagues came up with, which is... Um, uh, when McCarthy was trying to hunt out um, communists in the State Department, he made this comment, which is, you know, if if there's one, if there's just one communist in the State Department, that's one too many. And okay, you know, one communist in the State Department may have done uh, a lot of damage um, to U.S. interests, but the costs of trying to monitor and seek out one communist in the State Department relative to the benefits of eliminating them was almost certainly an adverse calculation. So I think the key insight that kind of marginal thinking brings is that when you're tackling most problems, the optimal amount of anything is not zero. And and why is that? It's because there will be some people for whom the marginal benefits of the activity do exceed the marginal costs. And if we could find a way of allowing them to do that whilst keeping the restriction for everybody else, then we'd benefit as a society. So how might we apply this to lockdowns or, you know, the pandemic? Well, it was pretty obvious fairly early on that a lot of outdoor activity brought kind of minimal risk of infection transmission, uh, but obviously has big economic benefits to people because they want to engage in it. They want to socialize, they want to meet friends or whatever. Now, obviously that's not a strict binary thing. You can't just say all outdoor activity is fine and all indoor activity is not um but how would you kind of think about that well if you're kind of designing an outdoor beer garden you might want to keep tables relatively separate uh but you might want to allow people to engage in that um activity um because the marginal benefits to people are pretty high but the marginal costs are are low and so many of the initial restrictions that we imposed um, last year, and there was, you know, understandable to a certain extent, because there was a, a wide degree of uncertainty about the pandemic, involved just banning things outright. Um, and as I say, that one of the insights of marginal thinking is that banning things is almost always worse than trying to kind of price in the problem. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, I'll give you a different example. Um, lots of Uh, jurisdictions have banned outright the drinking through plastic straws or the sale of plastic straws in 
coffee shops and uh, lunch joints and the like. Um, but there are some people for whom the benefit of using a straw, particularly disabled uh, people, for whom the, the benefit of using a, a plastic straw is incredibly high. And they really actually struggle with the suction of paper straws. Um, and it would be much better for them if they had availability of plastic straws in places that they were uh, willing to go and shop. Now, banning them outright um, uh, obviously means that those individuals are harmed. Now, if there was a way that we could kind of price in the, the problem associated with pollution of plastic straws, we might say, okay, there's a, I don't know, 50 cent charge whenever you have a plastic straw, that would probably reduce use by 85, 90%. And the people who really valued straws would continue uh, to use straws. Now, it's hard sometimes to design policies like that, and they can be incredibly complex. And sometimes it, you know, sometimes the, the marginal, the, the subsection of the population for whom the benefits exceed the cost is so small that politicians just, you know, just ban the thing entirely. And I can accept that to a certain extent. But the economic insight is that it's almost always better to try and find a way of allowing those for whom the benefits exceed the cost of an action to continue to do so and try to target the intervention as much as possible on those for whom the costs exceed the benefits. So this is very interesting, Ryan, because I remember reading in your book this example you gave where you said that governments have taken steps to constrain our behavior, as you just said, and that those are on choices that go beyond our voluntary action. Um, so the question that you posed was that what justifies um, these constraints on our behavior? Because as human, be human beings, we have this notion or this sort of rebellious thing to say that, no, I'm, I'm actually going to do this now, now, just because you told me not to do it. But the reason why governments do it, as you said, in terms of the rationale is because if we were to, you know, be free to do whatever we wanted to do, then certain actions or certain behaviors we took would have negative impacts on other people um, beyond the, in comparison, way more than the positive impact. And so, you described that the reason for this, which I found very interesting, is because there's a failure to account for these impact or to price them in, as you said, uh, when we make decisions as individuals. So I'm curious to know if, do you believe that pricing these in, pricing uh, the negative impact of our actions into our financial systems will actually solve the issue and therefore uh, not have governments impose so many rules and regulations which people tend to sort of go against? Well, this issue is really described as externalities, right? This is the way that economists describe it. And the idea is that when we engage in an activity, uh, sometimes we have positive or negative effect effects on third parties for which there's no obvious means of compensating them um, or them compensating us. Uh, that's a key insight, actually. Externalities are almost always two-sided. Um, so, uh, you know, it may well be true that, like, a, if a factory sets up and starts polluting and pollutes a river, that the people downstream might suffer from that. But um, in economic terms, they could also move elsewhere. So the externality is kind of both in, in both directions. And uh, one of the key insights of an economist, Ronald Coase, um, is it's not always optimal, despite what people's moral instincts are, to impose um, any sort of intervention on the polluter 
actually sometimes it can be better to impose the restriction on the person who's being polluted on if you see what i mean so you know um it may well let me give you another example um uh, suppose that there's an airport which has noise pollution which keeps people up in the village below the flight path um, at night and those individuals are suffering now um, some people might say oh there should be a ban on uh, airplanes flying between this hour and this hour to account for this externality that's happening but that might be incredibly costly from a kind of communal uh, economic perspective and it, it might actually just be relatively cheaper to find ways of uh, the airlines compensating the individuals in uh, living in those houses or else uh, insisting on some construction efforts which made uh, these houses more noise proof from the planes or whatever. Um, so this externality issue is interesting because it's the justification for a lot of government action is that if I go and meet you, I might have adverse consequences on somebody else. Um, I think economists overuse this concept to justify interventions in our lives. I, I think a lot of the time externalities balance out. Um, a lot of the time people claim things are externalities when they're not really externalities. Um, uh, if me and you met and I gave you COVID, that's not an externality. You know, you've met me knowing that there's a risk of transmission from me to you. You're a willing party to that trade. If I go to somebody's house for Thanksgiving, the same. The externality comes in a number of different forms. So one is that if we meet up, uh, a member of your household who hasn't agreed to us meeting up may be adversely affected if I transmit the virus to you and then you tr transmit the virus to them. So there's a kind of negative externality uh, there, which may result in illness, uh, severe illness for, for those individuals, potentially even hospitalization or death. Um, if we engage in activity and infect one of us infects the other, um, we may have to go to hospital and that might create what's known as a congestion externality in the hospital. The hospital gets overwhelmed with the number of cases. Now, why is this such a problem with COVID-19? I recognize it's a difficult concept to really get to, but why is this such a problem with COVID-19? Well, ordinarily, a lot of these externalities, as I say, are so small that they don't matter. We don't think about them from a public policy perspective. Others are quite large and politicians try to design certain interventions, corrective taxes, um, it, you know, bans in certain places where you have the most egregious forms of the externality. This COVID-19 externality problem is more pernicious in the sense that uh, because this virus spreads asymptomatically and because it spreads uh, through aerosol transmission, we don't have a clue unless we test everyone regularly who has got the virus, who has not, who's given it to who, and so who we should be restricting in terms of their activities or who we should be telling to stay home. We don't know who's vulnerable to this virus a lot of the time. And as a result of that, I think it was almost inevitable that there were going to be some restrictions, some mandates, some changes to our lives that had to occur at a whole society level. Because without means of identifying who was infectious or who was at risk, uh, separating people out into different groups or apply, applying very targeted measures 
to deal with the externality was extremely difficult. And I recognize I haven't quite answered your question, uh, but that's kind of my best effort as describing the externality problem because it is a diff- that is a more difficult economic concept to grasp. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, d- despite uh, despite the, the complexity of the question, I think you still did a very good job at summarizing and discussing ex- externalities, like we were saying earlier. A lot of these economic concepts in the context of maybe the education system go over a lot of people's head, but I'm sure through the illustration of just the pandemic and applying that, it intuitively, it makes a lot of sense to people. Um, and I just wanted to go on a, a, a similar point um, and just talk about maybe... Uh, in relation to externalities um, and the costs and how it's equated in our economic system currently. Um, so uh, as a part of our podcast, Utopias now inherently there's a, there is a, uh, an, an essence of progressing forward. And there's a quote we love to use by a philosopher called Eduardo Galeno. And he talks about striving towards the horizon. And even if you don't really get there, you're still trying to move one step forward. And um, there's another writer called Roman Krasnick um, who wrote The Good Ancestor. It talks about long-termism, posterity, and he talks about the supply and demand graph. And he makes a critique of, of, um, of modern-day economics and he talks about how the supply and demand graph is usually drawn on a piece of paper but it's not drawn on the backdrop of the environment and so that's the critique he lays lays out and a question i was wondering is that with externalities like you said usually there's always a balance but in some sense within the context of maybe um, climate change or environmentalism and biodiversity um, we can see that maybe things are not exactly balanced in a sense maybe economically in the in the traditional sense they are but as we can see through um through just increasing temperatures and maybe increasing um, destruction of bioenvironments, this may not be balanced. And so I was wondering, um, is it our moral imperative or maybe economic imperative to pursue uh, externalities in an economic system that truly reflects the cost of whatever is being done, whether that's um, environmental damage or moral damage or anything of this sort? One of the big challenges with the externality framework um, and why I think it's so abused often is that often it's incredibly hard to determine what that price is. And I think behind a lot of the climate change debate is really a debate as to the extent to which um, the extent to which um, temperature, you know, the worst case scenarios um, will occur, um, the likelihood that that will happen. And even if they do occur, to what extent will that result in significant harm to human and environmental welfare? Uh, uh, Because in the interim, of course, we'd have got much richer. And as a result of being much richer, we may have found other ways to adapt that help mitigate those consequences. So I admit that this is a really, really difficult question. Um, My concern, though, is that... um, a lot of environmentalists and a lot of politicians especially have um, moved away from just thinking about trying to deal with the carbon emissions external or the greenhouse gas emissions um, externality and are using this to kind of try and reshape uh, society generally. So as an economist, when, when I'm assessing climate policy and i don't write about it particularly often it's a bit outside of my wheelhouse but you know our starting point uh for comparison of other policies would be okay try and 
figure out what the social cost of carbon is. Um, think about a way that you could create a, a, a carbon tax border. Probably a, it would have to be a border adjusted carbon tax so you don't just uh, export all of your uh, emissions and allow markets to find the cheapest ways of uh, mitigation given that you price this into the system. And that might be some people deciding to, um, you, you know, uh, renovate their homes to make them more energy efficient. It might be uh, people moving towards electric vehicles. It might be people taking fewer flights because the externality is priced into the flights. You know, it could be a whole host of different different things. But rather than doing that, um, politicians have a tendency to try and kind of plan in an industrial sense. Um, so they look at, okay, X percent of emissions come from the transport system. So we have to get that to Y percent by this date. Um, and I think that's an extremely crude and could be a very, very costly way of uh, trying to deal with the problem. And as a result of that, I suspect that there will be a lot of political pushback because when you try and do drastic industrial things rather than um, allow the incremental process that plays out in a market, you tend to upset a lot of um, interest groups. Um, now, those same interest groups, of course, would rail against a simple border adjusted carbon tax. You know, you've had this debate in um, Australia already, so I'm not pretending that there's any easy option. Uh, this is not in the in the immediate term. You know, you might think there's economic benefits down the road, but in the immediate term, this is not a cost-free endeavor. So I would just kind of summarize by saying, I think that I don't think politicians have squared with people what the near-term cost will be. And I think the near-term cost will be relatively large. Um, and you have to make the moral case that you're doing this for primarily for future generations. Um, but trying to work out exactly what those social costs will be is incredibly difficult because we are an adaptive um, uh, ingenious species in many ways and i don't think many of us can even perceive the types of technologies that might exist that allow us to live more environmentally friendly lives in the next 20 to 30 years and so i think planning an industrial policy on saying we're going to have uh, this amount of nuclear, this amount of wind power is just the wrong way of thinking about and framing this question. Yeah, for sure. I, what I'm hearing is that in some sense, we need a, a, a solution that thinks allows us to think on the margin as opposed to thinking in binary terms. That's, that's what I'm getting uh, the, the, a huge, um, that's the, the big sense I'm getting. Well, well, I think there's two things. There's that. And there's also the recognition that the, the economy is, um, a, well, economic outcomes are a process of trial and error and market experimentation. Mm -hmm. Some things will work and some things will, will fail and be a disaster. Um, so having, having politicians kind of pick particular industries and going all in, I think mm -hmm. is just a, a really dangerous way of, of doing things because it creates sunk costs and, you know, yeah. then creates interest groups. And I would prefer, I would prefer as a starting point that we thought about the price of things and then allow people to adjust according to their own values rather than trying to impose from the top down what those values should be. Yeah, for sure. It, it seems like a similar problem to bring philosophy into this to the utilitarian calculus. What, what is subjective and what is important to others is very hard to determine.
Um, but I wanted to ask another question and it's in relation to, in relation to decision-making economics, and then we can, uh, we can um, go back to pandemic economics, especially because that's a very big interest. Um, it's in relation to, like I said, decision-making and um, you may, you may know uh, there's an organization, a behavioral uh, organization, behavioral psychologist named Adam Grant. He's written a lot of popular books. Um, he's a professor at Wharton and uh, in his recent book called Think Again, he makes the challenge to all of us to um, make sure that we uh, have this adaptive thinking that we, we don't get fixated on a particular way of thinking and constantly question our, our, our thinking. So even me believing that that book is important, I should question that as well, which is an interesting paradox. Um, you mentioned in the book that um, you're a libertarian economist, which is um, something I'd love to learn more about. Um, but I wanted to ask, do you think by labeling yourself as a one particular type of economist that you confine yourself to um, that particular um, mindset and maybe risk not being able to change your mind in the future? Do you think that's a risk? And I'd, I'd love to learn more. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that having some sort of ideological framework about the world, I think, you know, in, instinctively we all have our own ideological framework based on values. Um, uh, but using the term ideological or uh, putting the word associated with your ideology before your profession is leaves you a hostage to fortune, um, I have to admit. Um, but in some respects, it can lead to your interventions being more powerful in, in some uh, senses. Uh, when you get kind of Nixon goes to China effect, when you do say something, that something is a big problem and people don't perceive um, that that is something as a libertarian that you'd otherwise say, um, that, can, that can actually give you a hell of a lot of credibility. And I think to a certain extent, I've had that in some of my writing for my column in the in the UK in the Daily Telegraph um, on COVID itself, because um, there are a lot of libertarians, sadly, that have fallen for kind of motivated reasoning, and because they dislike inherently the the government policies that have resulted from COVID nineteen, whether that be the lockdowns or the mandates or the like, and they actually do have genuine concerns, which I share that the size and scope of government never really tends to fall back after crises to the level it was going into it. So I could fully understand all of their, um, all of their concerns. But as a result of that, there's been a tendency among certain groups to, to reach for arguments outside of their wheelhouse that comport to their ideological priors. And we've seen that with, you know, discussions about how dodgy PCR testing is or, um, uh, people suggesting that the virus is much less um, virulent in terms of it, infection fatality rate than it actually is, uh, kind of downplaying the the efficacy of, of certain interventions, even when it's clear that curves the curves of infections of deaths have shifted pretty fundamentally. Um, so I think there are advantages and disadvantages. I mean, what I what I'm kind of signalling with that, and I think labels are actually important. It's just my my priors are usually from a consequentialist perspective. Um, a lot of government interventions don't tend to achieve their objectives, and when even when they do tend to achieve their objectives, uh, they impose a lot of costs on a variety of people, which quite often uh, are left um, unspoken about. And 
and I'm confident in that prior from a kind of empirical perspective. Um, I try and stay intellectually honest. You know, I would, in the US debate, I don't know how closely you're following it at the moment. I do think, for example, that unemployment insurance benefits, extremely high per week, $300 supplement on top of existing benefits. I do think that that is restricting um, or preventing people from going back into the labor force. But I don't think it's the only reason. And um, certain people in this debate talk in a very all or nothing way. But I try to be even handed because I think my credibility as someone who's trying to inform the public about economics is not to be, um, you know, is not just to beat the drum from an ideological perspective, but try to approach issues, um, try to approach issues where I think I can, I, I can shift the needle uh, in a direction that I think is is pro liberty, but where there's good empirical grounding for um, the ideas and results that I'm articulating. And I, I just add on that. I mean, some people say, well, you know, why don't you write a column advocating for this government program because, or for this government intervention because actually it is justified from an economic perspective. Um, but I think we all look for niches in our life, right? There are already 20 think tanks arguing for some sort of certain government intervention. I think it's best, better, my time is better spent focusing on issues that others are not spotlighting as much. Thank you so much. <laughs> so it's interesting the way you put that. It sounds like um, I, I don't know too much about libertarian economics, but from my humble understanding from what you said, it seems like uh, there's more of a need for freedom and less government intervention where there's not so much of this top-down approach, but rather this bottom-up approach. Is that Would that be a fair characterization of uh, the thinking that you're coming from? I would summarize it slightly differently. Um... We have in economics textbooks, the models of perfect competition, the kind of economic 101, supply demand diagram, everything is in equilibrium, uh, prices are stable, uh, certain things occur. That clearly is a starting point, but it's not a model of the real world. What a lot of people do is they then come along and say, there are all sorts of market imperfections. Some people don't have good information. There's externality problems. Public goods are underprovided. And they jump from that to suggesting that therefore we need the government to intervene, provide those public goods, deal with those externalities, provide that information. My starting point is, you're right, markets aren't perfect, but you know what? They're also not perfectible. And uh, a lot of the, the, the things that people perceive as problems actually are lesser problems when you account for the fact that markets are an ongoing process. They're a trial and error process. Entrepreneurs have incentives to try and uh, protect people from certain problems. Uh, consumers demand safety. So businesses have an incentive to provide them with what they want. Um, so I'll give you a good example. You know, a lot of people would look at behavioral economics, say, and think that people have, uh, people suffer from this thing called hyperbolic discounting. Um, quite often, uh, there's there's something that in the in the future they'll regret their past decisions and wish that they'd have um, 
you know, taking different decisions. So commonly people refer to this when talking about smoking or, or eating um, certain things. Their future selves would look back and wish that they'd done something different. Um, but, you know, markets are already finding ways of dealing with that problem. All these new diet apps that come up, they find ways of tying you to the mask. They find ways of like providing you with the information. They find ways with trying to get you to track your activity. Um, so to compare the world in which you have these just individuals walking around, have no idea about what their future selves would want. Um, and then compare that to a world in which the government, the kind of benevolent paternalistic government intervenes and comes and solves all the problems that completely ignores the fact that actually, um, within markets, people are making the point that your future selves, um, won't like what you see and providing you with tools and opportunities to lock in behaviors that you prefer in future now. Um, and markets are incredibly dynamic like that. Um, they're incredibly entrepreneurial. Um, and one consequence, I think, of this, this um, rise in discussion of behavioral economics has been that loads of people are exploiting it for entrepreneurial purposes and actually developing products and things that enable people to get their true preferences in the, in the long term without the need for government intervention. That's a very interesting sum sum summary of libertarian economics. As someone that's not, um, you know, like Shashwit, similarly, I don't know all the different schools of uh, economic thought. Um, that is quite interesting. Um, but it reminds me of a of a something I've read in um, in a, there's a Harvard professor named Michael Sandel, and he has a book called the The Moral Limits of the Market, um, which I think is, is is in some sense is a uh, is a, an argument against libertarianism. I just wanted to get your thoughts because this seems really interesting. So he references two sorts of activities that the market enjoys. So on one hand, you have bullfighting in Spain. And then on the other hand, if you go a couple hundred years ago, you have um, duels in Rome in the Colosseums where warriors would you know, kill each other for the entertainment of the public. So in some sense, the, the case he likes, he puts forward is that in some sense, yes, the market does, um, it can create solutions it um, it can internalize the externality, I think, is the way to put it in economic terms. But in other terms, there are limits to the market, which um, in some sense can encourage things that are maybe unethical. You could say like, you know, bullfighting or, you know, just murdering other people for the sake of uh, public entertainment. I'd like to hear your take on that and uh, get your thoughts because it just, I don't know, it just popped out of my mind. So I agree with him that there are certain things that are morally unacceptable and so we ban them yeah nobody would be in favor of allowing a free market in murder for example so clearly there are limits to a market but i think that's a kind of that's a truism that is you know i think he's either trivial the point is either trivial or wrong it's trivial if we're just saying that there are certain things that we have all decided are morally unacceptable and so we're not going to allow them to participate and that can change over time and there's a moral debate to be had around things like bullfighting and whether you should allow people to uh, knock five bells out of each other in a coliseum i mean we have that to a certain extent right with boxing continuing uh now so why is boxing any inherently different obviously it's much riskier in terms of death risk fighting in the coliseum where i disagree with michael though is that um I think that I, I think I start from the premise that anything that you um, are 
able legally and morally to do for free, you should also be able to do for money. Because there we're just arguing over the price, right? We're arguing over a zero price or a positive price. So I'll give you an example, controversial example. I think that um, given you're able to do kidney donations for free, you should be able to be paid um, for your kidney. Um, uh, and I think that would yeah, actually uh, you know, improve um, the matching and save a hell of a lot of lives. And they, they do this in certain uh, countries. I think that we should have had human challenge trials that would have sped up the vaccine process where young and healthy individuals um, who are willing to accept a payment are paid to be deliberately infected with the virus in controlled conditions as part of testing various vaccines. Um, you know, especially when we were at a stage where we knew the death risks for certain age groups, I think um, uh, free individuals should be able to judge those risks, judge that against the, the payoff that they would receive and judge whether that's something that makes sense for them. So I know that that is a controversial starting point, um, but I think it's very difficult to argue that, I think it's very difficult quite often to argue things are morally wrong when you're just debating the price. Interesting. So I, I have two challenges to what you just brought up. Um, so the first thing you mentioned was that, um, you know, for, for example, Coliseum fighting, obviously like people murdering each other, they just ban the activity, right? Um, in my mind, that seems inherently counter uh, anti-libertarian because what you're saying is uh, some sort of um, body or government um, institution, etc., is imposing a certain um, authority over a group of people or a, a population and saying you are not allowed to do this anymore. So, in some, the first thing I would say isn't banning things inherently anti-libertarian, and that's some, coming from a place of curiosity. I'm not too sure. And then the second thing, in terms of, um, in terms of you know, kidney, um, selling your kidneys for, um, you know, for, you know, for the price of what, whoever is the highest bidder. Um, in some sense, would you say that's correct if people are doing, if, for example, um, I mean, maybe this is typical street philosopher, pull up a random hypothetical example. If people are selling their kidneys in, a, in an environment where it's not because they can, they, they, they can make money, but they have to, otherwise they will starve or they won't be able to afford food or clothing or send their children to school. Isn't that morally, um, doesn't that go against, um, I guess, morality? Or isn't that maybe quote unquote wrong if people have to do that? because of out of necessity because there's not that equal playing field and until we get that equal playing field we can't really let the market determine that it, i'm not too sure if that question makes sense but feel free to um, clarify in case anything is a bit confused yeah so i mean on the first point in my libertarian utopia uh utopia is now um i would be probably more permissive um than most other people on what activities could take place. Um, um, I, I, you know, there's a whole host of what I'd describe as victimless crimes. Things would be uh, legal. Um, I probably wouldn't be morally opposed to people participating in um, duels and activities if they wanted to engage in that, given the risk with rewards that they 
they face. But clearly, you know, there are some things that we all accept are morally wrong, like uh, individuals being harmed against their will. Um, and, you know, I do broadly subscribe to um, John Stuart Mill's um, harm principle as a, as a starting point. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's a, a, a dark a dark line. I think there are certain gray areas, but, you know, I think your, your question is, is right to kind of push back and, and say, well, where would that specific line be for you? And I think the harm principle would inform a lot of the kind of decisions that I would make if I was a dictator in a libertarian utopia, as much of a paradox as that is. Um, on the second question, you're essentially going to, uh, as I understand it, you're challenging it on kind of inequality grounds, right? So that some people are so poor that they would feel the need to um, sell their their kidneys for money uh, in order to live. But I think you're kind of identifying the decision in a vacuum. Um, I think if as a society you're making judgments about what is morally right, your moral contention there is that as a society we shouldn't leave certain people in such uh, desperate poverty that they have to engage in desperate actions like selling their kidneys, uh, which would be an argument for um, a, perhaps a modest uh, safety net or uh, the facilitation and allowance of certain charitable organizations and institutions to make sure that uh, people didn't feel the need to do those, those types of separate things. So, and I, I, I don't think we can assess this as a moral issue a societal moral issue um, in a vacuum for that reason. Um, having said that, I think we our starting point in most situations should be that individuals uh, taking into consideration their circumstances, taking into consideration the opportunity, you know, we say opportunity cost of what they would otherwise do. If an individual is that desperate for money, um, in a in a state of nature where there is not a welfare state and they are that desperate for money that they think the prospects for, say, their children would be dramatically improved by being able to put them into school, being able to feed them properly, then as ungratifying as observing that trade-off is, um, I do not think if this is something that we would allow them to do for free, it is morally objectionable to allow that to that trade to occur for payment. And I know that that's a controversial view, but I'm willing to stand by it. Now, thank you for addressing the, the challenges. Uh, this, um, as a part of our channel, intellectual um, conversation on tough topics is something uh, that we try to strive for. So um, all challenges for or against are uh, appreciated. <laughs> so, I wanted to um, add a few comments on what you just said. It seems like freedom is what you're ultimately getting at. And I am also, um, regard, despite not having much knowledge about the political, ideological ways of thinking about this, I do agree with a lot of things you said in terms of allowing people to choose for themselves what they might um, what they think is the best for them. But now thinking more in an economical sense, um, doesn't economics and free markets assume that um, people have information about making uh, in order to help them make decisions? And so if so, then um, isn't there a lack of information for people to be able to make decisions, whether they think it's right or wrong? So uh, essentially what I'm saying is 
I'm all for freedom and allowing uh, people to do what they want and choosing what they want. But if there is a lack of education or a lack of information, perhaps in the prices or our economic structures, then does that still account for or sort of morally um, benefit them? Or would you say that's still okay, despite there not being perfect information? And I know you said we can never get to perfect information, but shouldn't we try to get more closer and closer to that information and then allow people to just make whatever choice they want for themselves? Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, but I think... I think you're kind of referring to issues where the information, where the, the truth is clear cut as opposed to an issue of competing uh, values or, or trade-offs, which is where the difficulty really comes in. Um, markets have within them error correction mechanisms for weeding out uh, people providing false information about their products. You know, if I start buying a food product and I get constantly sick from it, <laughs> I start going on message boards and complaining about this product. Other people then refer to it. Uh, there becomes a new story um, uh, that the company gets pushed back and decides to take these products off the shelves. Now, so in some cases, obviously the costs of that, um, that faulty product or whatever would be so large that it would be better to have some sort of checks and balances prior to the products going to market. So I'm not pretending that there's absolutely no scope for regulation or uh, quite often within industry um, kind of self-regulation in, in some respects, you know, accreditation and standards and the like. But that is, that is part of the rich tapestry of what makes up a market economy. Um, there are some countries, for example, where in, in terms of childcare, there's barely any regu regulation because um, parents really demand a safe space for their kids to be looked after, to be careful, to improve their development. And so it's within child carers' interest to group together, to be assessed by an authority that they all have um, confidence in, to get a kind of check mark accreditation to show that they meet particular standards. And I think this is a really underexplored area. Um, of market activity. When I refer to the market, I think a lot of people think about the actual kind of bazaar, you know, like the, 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 the trades that take place for money. When I talk about a free market, I'm not just talking about the actual market activity takes place. I'm really talking about the broader um, freedom and constraints that if left unhindered, uh, markets and civil society would develop to shape behavior and we know from many many different sectors historically uh, even today that even if there's no government regulation of certain things you do get this development of accreditation and standards and the like because that is something that people demand and that is something that other intermediate institutions within society can provide so libertarians aren't you know, pro-market in the sense of their pro-market and anti-government and anti-community solutions. Um, they see a balance between um, markets and civil society on the one hand and government action on the other and worry that a lot of the time, not just um, does government action create unintended consequence for markets and civil society, but um, a lot of government action actually crowds out some of the solutions 
that would occur at a more local granular level to deal with problems that actually do arise in market activity. Yeah, it's very interesting the way you frame that because before I used to think of markets in this sort of bizarre way or like, you know, capitalistic markets. But if I was to, again, just going off street philosophy, try to philosophize what is a market. And if I was to say a market is simply a space where an exchange of information takes place, whether information is words or information is an object uh, you, that, that goes a little bit meta, but even this in that sense is a market because we are exchanging information and there is a transfer of information back and forth. So I really like what you said in terms of thinking of markets in a different way. And it sounds like, um, what you're talking about is almost a self-organized society where people through the exchange of information are able to figure out how to organize themselves in the best way that works for the people in that context without uh, there needing to be this authoritarian system that says this is the right thing and this is the wrong thing and this is how things must be and must not be rather more of an organic way of doing it and why I love that is because I read that the complexity theory actually says that uh, a bottom up way of bringing order from chaos actually leads to more order whereas a top down approach can cause more disorder than order. So I really, really liked um, the approach that you're suggesting. And I'm sure there's people who may outright say, no, this is completely wrong, but I do see both the sides of the story. So it's very interesting to hear what you said. Yeah, we call it um, in the kind of free market economic circles, we would call that spontaneous order. Um, it's a really nice phrase for talking about it. And, um, you know, spontaneous order um, is governed by, if you go back to your kind of Friedrich Hayek, um, it, you know, is governed by norms, it's governed by um, uh, implicit rules and customs and ways of doing things that develop over time to weed out mistakes. Um, but I, I think where a lot of economists kind of start is they learn the Econ 101, then they learn, um, you know, the, the externality stuff, and then they presume that a kind of savior government with policies designed by economists can come in and solve problems. Actually, the work of Nobel Prize winning economists like Eleanor Ostrom has, has shown that even some of the thorniest issues like, um, you know, tragedy of the commons issues where you get um, a, a, a village, if it's presumed if a government doesn't come in and set rules on fishing, then people will have incentives to overfish that actually communities when they're kind of quite small and um, have good relationships with it uh, with each other are actually actually quite a able often to come to uh, communal agreements that alleviate that problem alleviate that externality problem um, and I would just kind of urge anyone watching to go and explore that type of work because it is really fascinating the provision of lighthouses that people thought only governments could provide there's a long history showing that even things like that public goods like that actually there are ways of providing them through market activity by imposing kind of small tolls on uh, on boats going through certain sea passages for example so there's all sorts of fascinating history on this and i think quite often when people hear the term market economy they are just thinking about maybe financial markets or this kind of wild west capitalism uh, but that's not what we mean as libertarians when we talk about capitalism and free markets we're talking about um, a framework governed by 
the rule of law governed by property rights and allowing not just individuals, but um, families, communities, civil society institutions to develop their own solutions to economic and social problems. Yeah, um, I find it very interesting where you made that distinction where you said most people think of economics as in financial capital markets. But when I read the first chapter of your book, it was super interesting where you made that distinction between finance and economics. And if I was to quickly summarize the example you gave, you spoke about your friend Dave, who told you that he was fi uh, economically uh, better off during the pandemic because he was making the same amount of money, but he was spending lesser due to lockdowns and whatnot. But you very interestingly proved that he was not actually economically better off, but rather economically worse off. And instead, he was financially better off. So I never thought of finance and economics as separate, but after reading that, I sort of got what you're saying. Would you perhaps be able to explain what is the difference between finance and economics and how would you visualize the separation and the similarities? And then also, given that it is separate, that the financial system doesn't um, sort of uh, account for everything within the economic system, how can we perhaps bridge the gap between finance and economics? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So what I was getting at in the book is that at an individual level and at a level of um, a nation, you can't just judge what I describe as economic welfare, broadly defined as being synonymous with people's bank balances or GDP. Um, now, why is that? Well, as I said, economics is really about... Um, human choices in a world of ever-changing constraints and ever-changing contexts. Um, and in the context of something like a, a deadly pandemic, um, what our optimal behavior, what our the behavior that we want to pursue would be, would be fundamentally different than in, you know, in a time before the, the pathogen was with us. Um, so it's certainly true that there's a lot of individuals that, uh, financially better off as a result of lockdown in terms of having more wealth uh, because as you say they were able to continue earning the same income they cut down on commuting costs they weren't going out to eat as often so their bank balances were replenished um, my example i thought was pertinent because the individual that i was talking about had always had the opportunity to work from home um, he had always had the opportunity within his choice set to live the lifestyle of the hermit lockdown and you know only go out to the grocery store once per week never see his family he chose not to do that he chose not to do that because uh for him his preferences were such that he actually wanted to go to the cinema he wanted to um go and play uh, rugby he wanted to go to football matches he wanted to go and see his family members that brought him pleasure that brought him utility that brought him human welfare. And that's what economics, I think, is about, is trying to uh, consider how people make choices in an ever-changing world to enhance their own welfare. And the pandemic is a really stark example of how that distinction between welfare and financial well-being, it can be really stark at times. In the same way, you know, that, that um, with a nation and GDP. Um, so I think that you know, finance is obviously an incredibly 
finance, you know, writ large is obviously an incredibly important part of a market economy. Um, a lot of financial activity greases the wheels for more mutually beneficial trades. We only tend to trade voluntarily when we're giving up um, uh, something for something that we prefer. So trade is mutually beneficial um, and welfare enhancing. And the financial system is a crucial component of greasing the wheels for those trades. Um, but it is not synonymous with economics. And I think that's a really key point. Okay. Also, well, thank you for that summary. That was a very, um, a very, um, uh, a very good, I think, collection of ideas and a distinction between finance and economics. And as a finance student, I think that there's a very definitive and uh, clear distinction between the two. Um, I wanted to transition now. You brought up GDP, which is obviously a very, very, it's a universal metric in terms of measuring the output of an economy. Um, and I think everyone refers to whether it's the, the average layman or economist, GDP is a very um, you know, useful figure. Um, it's efficient, but it may not be the best metric. And you say in the book specifically, you said during the pandemic, um, there's a good reason to think that GDP is a very bad metric for assessing economic welfare. Um, and it, going back to the pandemic broadly, it taught us many things. Um, aside from, um, aside from, uh, I guess, the lessons from, I guess, a public health perspective, um, what has the pandemic taught us about the nature of our economic system? Um, and do you think that ties into we need a new metric for GDP? Um, what do you think? That's a great question. I think it's taught us that, um, I think paradoxically, it's taught us that we're more resilient um, than we were 20 to 30 years ago, though I think a lot of people would have difficulty accepting that because they would look at GDP. So I've heard the historian Neil Ferguson, who I have a great deal of respect for, and I've written a very positive review of his new book, Doom. Um, he has done a lot of interviews where he's compared the COVID-19 pandemic to the 1957 flu pandemic. And he suggested that the fact that in 1957, Dwight Eisenhower pretty much kept the shell on the road. Everybody continued to live their lives as normal with fairly minimal restrictions, that that inherently is an example of a more resilient society, you know, a society willing to front up this pathogen and take it on the chin. But I don't think that's a good metric for resilience. Um, I think as a result of the innovation, the technological developments that we've seen, um, those things have facilitated the ability for us as a society when something like this pandemic hits to actually do lockdowns <laughs> because so many of us can work from home. Um, and uh, the fact that we can continue engaging in our work activity, a large proportion of people have that option that they didn't have, you know, 50 uh, 60 years ago is an example of a society that in many respects is more resilient now than it was before. Now, there are also a whole host of other ways that I think we're less resilient. I think there's much more bureaucratic, I, where I agree with Ferguson is there's much more bureaucratic dysfunction now. Um, the regulatory state is huge. There were massive mistakes through the pandemic uh, where there was over precaution on the behalf of bodies like the FDA and the CDC here, Public Health England in the UK, where they were delaying the rollout of first diagnostic tests and then rapid tests and then, um, you know, pausing vaccines uh, on fairly uh, spurious grounds when you look at the balance of risks and benefits. So 
I think in that respect, there's a lot more regulatory inertia that is welfare harming. Uh, but overall, I think the fact that we're so much wealthier than we were able to provide that relief and the fact that our technological development is such that we're actually able to the audacity of considering shutting down the economy, uh, shutting down much market activity, should I say, uh, the audacity of that is a reflection of the fact that as a result of our wealth and technological improvements, we've made ourselves more resilient because we've broadened the, the set of choices uh, through which we can counter something like a pandemic. Thank you so much for that, for that, Ryan. Um, there's a lot of lessons that we mentioned. And I guess the, the last thing I would like to say as well, that I think the perspective we're taking is a very Western perspective, but where Shashwood is sitting in India right now, there's obviously a lot of, a lot of tragedy that's going on amongst other developing countries as well. And um, I noticed that you mentioned in an article before that um, there was uh, somewhere in India, they wrote an article using, um, using um, your elements of your book to sort of aid, um, aid whatever research is going on there. And so um, I suppose for all those that are listening that are not in maybe in uh, this, in the, that have the privilege that we have living in a Western country or have access to a Western country. Um, I suppose it's just very interesting to see that from an economic point of view, because we, we can actually have a view and look at everything whilst being in the comfort of our homes. Um, yeah, no, I would say on that, I would say on that, that, you know, the, the lessons that I try to get across in the book are universal, but in terms of the application to specific decisions, they obviously, that differs greatly dependent on where you are in the world. And, you know, big Western developed countries have able been able the us and the uk in particular actually you know were able to get the advanced orders um for vaccines in early and pay a relatively high price to get those through i think that passed any cost benefit um analysis greatly but clearly this is an ongoing and live pandemic in most of the rest of the world and the trade-offs that are being faced in those places you know, my fiance is originally from El Salvador and there there's vast majority of the population does not have the option not to work. So the way that they think about mitigating the risk from this virus is extraordinarily um, different to anything that we've perceived here. So I, I, I don't, you know, in saying about the technological developments and the improvements in resilience, I should have uh, couched that by, by saying that that is a very Western perspective. Um, and in much of the rest of the world, the trade-offs are that much thornier as a result. Thank you for sharing that, Ryan. So all that being said, a last couple of questions to you. What would you say to the audience who's listening, to individuals, young individuals listening, on how do we make better decisions with thinking about this economic way of thinking? How do, on an individual level, do we make better decisions? And then how do we also create systems that enable better decisions, whether that's on an organizational level or on a societal level? And all that to be said, we're curious to know what would your utopia, your personal utopia look like? <laughs> wow, that's a big question there. I think the, an individual level, one of the things that people fall for a lot is they fall for the sunk cost fallacy, right? because you've invested a whole amount of time and uh, money and effort and endeavor into something uh, 
you want to finish it even if from this point forward it doesn't bring you um, individual benefits that exceed the costs and we see that with a lot of individuals in relationships that they've been in for a long time and they know that they're bringing them net pain but they continue to be in relationships because they've invested five years and got to know the family and all that kind of stuff um, you see it with people staying in jobs where they think they've they've stayed in a job for so long that they should continue to to do it even though it's not bringing them um, kind of net utility anymore so I'd say one of the key things is be forward-looking um, think about think about things on the margin and don't fall for the, the sunk cost fallacy um, from a personal perspective I tend to very much think on the margin in the senses I don't even try to plan my own life in, in in any more than a few months at a time I tend to try and take things as they come uh, because we do live in an ever-changing world um, the only thing that I've planned recently is my wedding for June 2022 and one of the reasons that I pushed it out so far is I recognized that there were going to be all sorts of ups and downs with the pandemic in the interim and I wanted to push that decision or push that uh, event off as for as long as possible um, such that I gave the, the the best chance of there being a degree of normality from that so I think at an individual level that's really key I think at a, an organizational societal level I think um, beware of kind of fads and conventional wisdoms um, is extremely important. I know that's not strictly a kind of pure economics thing, but change entails big costs and a lot of changes are transient. Um, I remember there was a couple of months ago now, there was this new social media app created, Clubhouse. I don't know if you guys have even heard of it or used it. Um, it was broadly a new social media platform where you could go on and essentially have conference-like events where you have speakers and you can invite audience members to come to the platform and speak. And people just go on there and have very long conversations, often about very interesting topics. And you could raise your hand to want to talk or whatever. Now, a lot of organizations saw that and it had rapid growth for a month or so, a month or two. So lots of organizations, social media teams invested quite a lot getting to know how to use the platform. Um, they uh, you know, spent time training people on how to use it. They signed themselves up, they built groups. And as far as I'm aware now, it's completely plateaued as, as a platform. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's gonna be the big thing that everybody perspective, but um, People, I don't think, thought rationally about it and I think fell for the fact that it was a fad and, uh, you know, jumped all in. Um, and that is that is the key point that I kind of want to make here is that if you have an idea or a concept or a vision, try and experiment things on a small scale first because good economics should be scalable. If something doesn't work with your with your local group or your local community, it's probably not going to work at a national level, which is, you know, a, na a national level is a subset of lots of different communities. And if you think your community is representative of the, of the nation, then trialing something somewhere, I think is really key before you jump all in. Um, and I did that with my book, you know, I wrote a couple of chapters, sent them off and said, do you think there's something in this before I then plunged in with a 16 uh, chapter 320 page um, 
book. So what would my utopia um, look like? Um, I think no, no pressure, by the uh, way, no, no pressure. You know, <laughs> well, I'm a, I tend to be one of those people where I'm pessimistic in the short term and optimistic in the longer term. So I, I'm, I'm really, a, I think human creativity is our greatest resource. And I think often gets ignored in the environmental uh, debates actually that we were referring to earlier. Um, so in the long term, I think that um, technological improvements, um, new products, goods, ways of doing things, uh, scientific advances will make, mean we're able to live uh, much wealthier, healthier, environmentally friendly, comfortable lives. And I hope as technologies uh, improve and we find new ways of doing things, that we have the institutions that are willing to actually give up power uh, rather than continuously accumulate power. The 20th century um, was an incredible period when you think of how we got so much wealthier and there was a, a big growth of government that, that kind of, I would say, came from that. You know, the, the demand for government proved to be very elastic to income. <laughs> As income went up, we demanded the state do more and more because we valued security. I think we're about to go through a technological transition which could fundamentally alter the way healthcare is provided, the way education is provided. And actually, I think that will give like big opportunities for non-government actors to get in on those um, sectors and provide us with the things that we want and need. What we, what, I think we'll only realize the benefits from that if actually um, politicians, governments are willing to give up power in the longer term. Um, and not just continue to accumulate it. So I'm ending on a very libertarian note. <laughs> <laughs>